Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Jake Tapper. This is CNN Tonight, live from Lviv, Ukraine, more than six weeks into this bloody Russian invasion. The U.S. State Department says, quote, we can no longer be surprised by the Kremlin's repugnant disregard for human lives, unquote. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky calling Russian military strikes killing civilians, quote, an evil that has no limits. He put out a new message this evening for the world that we'll show you in a moment. The world responded today to yet another Russian targeting of civilians in this instance, civilians that were trying to escape the hell of this war. They were at a jam-packed train station in Kramatorsk in the eastern region of Donbass. Another warning, the images we're about to show you are very graphic, they are very disturbing, but we cannot look away from this reality. Those horrifying screams, the haunting scramble for cover after Russia fired what is believed to have been a short-range ballistic missile directly on this crowd of women, children, men and the elderly, at least 50 were killed including five children, at least 98 wounded, including 16 children. Ukrainian military authorities say the missile contained cluster munitions, more commonly called a cluster bomb. It's a cruel device designed for propelling secondary sub-munitions to kill as many people as possible. Written in Russian on the missile were the words, quote, for the children. CNN cannot confirm who wrote that, and we don't know what it's even supposed to mean. Was it some kind of revenge revenge message on behalf of Russian children, or was that directed at Ukrainian children? Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says once again tonight, Russia must be held accountable. We expect a firm, global response to this war crime. Like the massacre in Bucha, like many other Russian war crimes, the missile strike on Kramatorsk must be one of the charges at the tribunal, which is bound to happen. Despite Moscow falsely suggesting again that it was not behind the attack, blaming Ukraine insanely, it has been obvious for weeks now that Putin's army is directly targeting civilian populations. We have seen the mass graves in Bucha, those slaughtered in the streets, some with their hands tied behind their backs. We've seen the blown up hospitals across Ukraine, including maternity wards and children's hospitals. We saw them strike that packed theater in Mariupol, that had the word children written in Russian outside the theater to warn them not to bomb it, clearly visible from the air. So it could not be any clearer who is at fault or whether these strikes are accidental or not. What's mystifying is the cruelty and what is confusing and confounding how to put an end to this nightmare. CNN's Phil Black takes us through this latest atrocity. For many who fear what is coming in eastern Ukraine, Kramatorsk Station has been a gateway to safety. 
Crowds of people have packed its platforms in recent days, desperate to increase their distance from a region Russia says it will soon conquer with overwhelming force. Witnesses say thousands came again on Friday morning. They sought safety. They couldn't escape the war. These are the moments after a ballistic missile exploded at the station. After debris and shrapnel tore through the crowd. So many dead bodies, a person cries. Only children, just children. When the screaming eventually stopped, the broken bodies of the innocent remained. We have to hide much of this scene. Most of those lying bleeding and still are women and children. Survivors fled. We managed to contact some by phone while they sheltered together in a public building, still scared and shaken. This woman says she looked up when she thought she heard a plane, then it exploded and everyone went down. This man says he heard the blast and threw his body over his daughter. The remains of the missile that terrified and hurt so many crashed down near the station. Hand-painted Russian words mark its side, declaring the weapon's avenging purpose. It says, for the children. The author and their intent are unknown. The result is yet another moment of horror in a war with endless capacity for taking and destroying innocent lives. So once again, world leaders are accusing Russia of committing an atrocity in Ukraine. And once again, Russia is denying all responsibility. The US assessment is this was a short-range ballistic missile fired from a Russian position inside Ukraine. The Ukrainian military says that missile was packed with cluster munitions, small bomblets which spread and explode over a wide area and which are banned in more than 100 countries. Jack. Phil Black and Lviv for us. Thank you so much. Here with me tonight is CNN's Nima Albagar, our chief international investigative correspondent. And Nima, given what we know from U.S. intelligence and, and from the evidence on the ground, there really seems to be no doubt that this was a Russian missile and that Russia deliberately targeted this train station packed with civilians. Well, it says that Putin, at the very least, wants to project a sense of impunity, that in the midst of all this conversation, all, the, all these calls for prosecution and war crimes investigation, for him to go ahead and use cluster munitions, a banned munition that are designed to cause the maximum amount of damage in a train station containing fleeing families, not only in the middle of a renewed offensive in the east of the country, so close to Russia's border, but while civilians are seeking to evacuate, it goes back to what we're seeing again and again, this pattern of subjugation through terrorization. You can't flee this. The world can't save you from this. And I think perhaps also what's important for, for your audience to know is that while they're outside hearing all this talk, perhaps feeling that there may be momentum on this conflict, on the ground here, we are at an impasse. Yeah. We are indeed. And in a U.N. official says there's credible evidence Russia has used cluster bombs indiscriminately at least two dozen times in Ukraine. And as you know, th these are designed to be cruel devices to, to kill as many people as possible. In, in 2008, more than 100 countries signed on to an international treaty to ban their use. Russia did not sign that treaty. We should note neither did the United States. And the United States has also used cluster bombs in the past, including in Iraq, including in Vietnam. 
Could that, along with our non-recognition of the International Criminal Court, the United States is, mm-hmm. uh, could that have any effect on whether Russia will face any punishment for what they're doing here, what are clearly war crimes? Absolutely. I mean, of the three main actors in this conflict, Ukraine is not a signatory either, but it's accepted the jurisdiction of the court. Russia, of course, is not a signatory, nor is the US. And unfortunately, it gives Putin what he craves, which is the ability to project this sense of Western hypocrisy and US overreach. Once again, the US speaks in a fashion, but doesn't act and doesn't hold itself to the same standards. This is this has always been going back to the first speech he famously gave in the uh, during the Iraq war, the, uh, that America asks of others to act in ways it does not ask of itself. Right. And even though uh, I could say, look, the United States does prosecute uh, its soldiers for committing war crimes, as you noted, President Trump pardoned a number of them. And, and you say that really had an effect. Well, it would also be probably the closest thing to political suicide for a U.S. politician to say, yeah, okay, we will cooperate with the ICC. We will hand over U.S. service people to the ICC. I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine, right? And that's what you're asking when you sign up to the ICC. And it comes back again to the ways that Putin plays off this idea of America's constant exceptionalism for itself. I'm not saying that this is true, but when America is saying only American courts can act on American service people, but we want Putin to be held to account, legally it also means that if whatever happens politically in Russia, mm-hmm. whoever takes over from Putin has no legal obligation to hand him over to prosecution. And that's incredibly difficult to enforce. Yeah, we also learned today that Russia is shutting down the offices of human rights organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what consequences does that have? Well, for me, it speaks to how much Putin is scared as much about the disinformation he needs to continue to sow internally in Russia, right? I mean, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have been in Russia for about 30 years. He's been slowly closing that space, not only for dissent, but for the ability to hear any alternative opinions, any alternative reality for the people inside Russia. And 44th or 45th day into this conflict, it's very difficult for even the most ardent Putin loyalists to not get a sense that we were told this was going to be quick. We were going to told, told this is going to happen in a very different way. And that we were going to be, you know, welcomed. Yes, roses in the streets of Kiev. That has not happened. Why? So this is part of a Western conspiracy. These are foreign actors. I mean, Putin went so far as to ze- designate a 25-year-old rapper as a foreign agent for speaking out against the fact that the reality has not followed what Putin has led the Russian people to expect. Yeah, not the act, not the actions of a, a smart or, I mean, a, a, a strong or confident leader. Nim Bagger, thank you so much, as always. Great to have you. The world uh, has come to know this graphic photo of a Ukrainian mayor and her husband and her son lying in a shallow pit after being shot in the head with their hands tied behind their backs. A funeral was held for the family a friend remembers them as heroes. Take a look. I think that they're really heroes of Ukraine because they stayed up to the end in order to help others and support others. And uh, they are uh, great representatives of our nation. I want to turn now to a member of the Ukrainian parliament, Anastasia Rodina, joins us now. Um, you're a public official, too. What goes through your mind when when you see mayors, middle-aged women, not in the military, just trying to govern, uh, being massacred like this? 
First and foremost, it shows us the scape of war crimes Russia is committing on Ukrainian territory. And frankly, I cannot think of any type of a war crime that hasn't been yet committed by Russia on Ukrainian territory. But even more importantly, this case shows us why Ukraine has to win this war. Our only chance to ensure peace and security and freedom in our land is to actually win this war. Otherwise, Russia will have concentration camps on uh, uh, all over the territory of Ukraine and there will be no future for us in the country. Speaking of war crimes, tell us uh, your reaction to what happened to the train station in Kramatorsk uh, earlier today. I can I, I don't just I, I even don't have words to describe that. This is undescribable, unbelievable, and more importantly, this is unforgivable. But what is most terrifying about that that this is just one of the examples of what Russia is doing and what as we are receiving reports from our intelligence that Russian troops are preparing to advance once again in Donetsk and Lugansk and Kharkiv regions, we are afraid that uh, cases like Kramatorsk will continue unless Ukraine receives all the heavy weaponry we actually need to, uh, to have proper counter offensive activities and to stop that. I mean, to be frank, these are these seem very much like the tactics of a terrorist organization uh, targeting people trying to flee. Absolutely. This is why we insist that uh, Russia is not just waging an unprovoked war on Ukrainian territory. What they are doing is genocide. And again, most horrifying is that Kramatorsk is just one of the examples. We can continue uh, naming these examples. This is Bucha. This is Mariupol, for example. We are right now receiving reports that uh, Russians started using portable crematoriums in Mariupol to hide uh, the scope of their uh, atrocities in Mariupol and to hide the number of civilians they massacred there. This is genocide and we call upon the world to recognize it as such. You've said the attack on the Kramatorsk train station is a clear sign that Russia has no commitment to the peace talks, to any diplomacy. Do you believe your government continuing with these talks is, is futile? Is diplomacy still possible at all? Well, first and foremost, we are a peaceful country and we are looking for the solution. At the same time, we have no illusions as to possibility of uh, workable compromises with Russia. We have seen since 2014 that Russia is not ready for peace talks. Russia is not ready for compromises. The only option for us to actually uh, be able to, again, ensure security and peace on our land is to receive military superiority. And this is why we are asking all uh, all the world, all the civilized world, if I may put it like this, to uh, help Ukraine by supplying necessary heavy weaponry that will allow us to just kick Russian soldiers out of our land again, because nothing else works with Russia. We've been there, we've tried since 2014. Uh, we were told not to escalate and to make some compromises. Where did that bring us to 2022 with Russia waging full-scale war uh, on our territory? Therefore, now our 
only option is to win and for that we need uh, proper military support and this is not just javelins but this is also heavy weaponry like uh, artillery like air defense systems and all the systems that will actually help us not only stop russian troops from advancing but also to be able to for example deblock mariupol and uh, help uh, occupied cities in uh, in for example kharkiv region like the city of izium where people are also suffering their, their, their wars. Thank you so much, Anastasia Rudina, this evening. We really appreciate your time. The site of the world's worst nuclear disaster was one of Russia's first cons- conquests. Putin's forces took over the Chernobyl power plant on day one of their invasion, but Ukrainian forces have reclaimed that land. You're about to see what they found when they did. Fred Pleitkin brings us a CNN TV exclusive. That's next. Welcome back. We're live in Lviv. The Chernobyl nuclear power plant is normally about a nine-hour drive from where I'm standing. The site of the world's worst nuclear disaster was captured by Russians at the start of their invasion in February, with the Kremlin pulling troops out of the region now. CNN's Fred Pleitkin and his team obtained exclusive TV access to the site. He joins us now live from Kiev. Fred, tell us what you saw. Hi there, Jake. Well, I think there were two things that really stood out to us. On the one hand, um, and the aftermath that we saw of that Russian occupation there was the way that the Russians treated the Ukrainians, not just the staff, but also some of the security personnel that was on hand there, seemed to have been uh, absolutely outrageous. But then also, their own soldiers apparently were subjected to possibly extremely high levels of radiation, and that they dug themselves in in some of the most contaminated areas in the entire world. It certainly seemed like something that was really, really a bad sight to see. Here's what we witnessed. Simply getting to the Chernobyl exclusion zone is a treacherous journey. Many streets and bridges destroyed, we had to go off-road, crossing rivers on pontoon bridges. Finally, we reached the confinement dome of the power plant that blew up in 1986, the worst nuclear accident ever. Russian troops invaded this area on the very first day of their war against Ukraine and took Chernobyl without much of a fight. Now that the Russians have left, Ukraine's interior minister, Denis Monastirsky, took us to Chernobyl and what we found was troubling. The Russians imprisoned the security staff inside the plant's own bomb shelter, the interior minister told us. No natural light, no fresh air, no communications. So the Russians kept 169 Ukrainians prisoner here the entire time they held this place. And then when the Russians left, they looted and ransacked the place. Among the prisoners, police officers, National Guard members and soldiers. Ukraine's interior minister tells me the Russians have now taken them to Russia and they don't know how they're doing. When I arrived here, I was shocked, he says, but only once again realized that there are no good Russians and nothing good comes of Russians. It is always a story associated with victims, with blood and with violence. What we see here is a vivid example of outrageous behavior at a nuclear facility. While the plant's technical staff was allowed to keep working, the Ukrainians say Russian troops were lax with nuclear safety. 
And as we enter the area Russian troops stayed and worked in, suddenly the dosimeter's alarm goes off. Increased radiation levels. They went to the Red Forest and brought the radiation here on their shoes, this National Guardsman says. Everywhere else is normal, only this floor is radioactive. I ask, everywhere is okay, but here is not normal? Yes, he says, the radiation is increased here because they lived here and they went everywhere. On their shoes and clothes, I ask? Yes, and now they took the radiation with them. Let's get out of here, I say. The so-called Red Forest is one of the most contaminated areas in the world, especially the soil. The Ukrainian government released this drone footage apparently showing that the Russians dug combat positions there. The operator of Ukraine's nuclear plants says those Russian soldiers could have been exposed to significant amounts of radiation. We went to the edge of the Red Forest Zone and found a Russian military food ration on the ground. When we hold the dosimeter close, the radiation skyrockets to around 50 times above natural levels. Ukraine says Russia's conduct in this war is a threat to nuclear safety in Europe. The Chernobyl nuclear power plant hasn't been in operation for years, but of course this confinement needs to be monitored 24-7 and also there's spent nuclear fuel in this compound as well. And it's not only in Chernobyl. Russian troops also fired rockets at Europe's largest nuclear power plant near Zaporizhia in southern Ukraine and are now occupying it. Ukraine's energy minister tells me the international community must step in. I, I think it's dramatically impacted, and that is the, really the act of nuclear terrorism, what they are doing. Chernobyl is close to the Belarusian border. The Russian army used this road as one of its main routes to attack Ukraine's capital. The interior minister says his country needs more weapons to defend this border. Today, the border between totalitarianism and democracy passes behind our backs, he says. The border between freedom and oppression. We are ready to fight for it. And the Ukrainians fear they may have to fight here again soon, as Russian President Vladimir Putin replenishes his forces, continuing to put this nation and nuclear safety in Europe at risk. And Jake, when I, when I kept talking to the energy minister, he told me he just believes that it's absolutely crazy that the Russian military told its soldiers to dig combat positions in that red forest. He said, look, if you're there for a couple of minutes, then that's all right. But if you have troops that are dug in there for several days, he believes that's life-threatening. These people might not have very long to live. And he says what's even more troubling is that the Russians still hold the largest power plant in Europe because he believes the Russian military simply has absolutely no appreciation of nuclear safety, Jake. Thank you, Fred Plankin and Key for that story. Really eye-opening. Ukraine is successfully beating back Russia in some parts of the country, but the fiercest fighting is yet to come. It's going to be in the eastern Donbass region. Is Ukraine going to be equipped enough to win battles against the Russians there? A top military analyst's take next. We continue live from Ukraine. The U.S. and NATO are ramping up their combat support of Ukraine in terms of military supplies. The U.S. Uh, announced today uh, that it is facilitating Ukraine, Ukraine acquiring a key Soviet-era missile defense system, the S-300, coming from Slovakia. The deal was made possible after the U.S. said it would send Slovakia, Ukraine's western neighbor and a NATO member state, 
a Patriot missile system in order to backfill what they were transferring to Ukraine. Now, how much of a difference will that make? Could something like that prevent the kind of tragedy we saw at the Kramatorsk train, train station earlier today? Let's get some insight from retired Army Brigadier General Mark Kimmett. Uh, General, thanks so much for joining us. So this is what we know about the S-300 air defense system. It has a range of 46 miles, an altitude of 82,000 feet. In addition, the U.S. is sending a range of other weapons, including more than 12,000 anti-armor systems and 50 million rounds of ammunition. Could this have an impact? Well, Jake, first of all, we've got to recognize that the Slovakian contribution is significant but the Ukrainians have had the S-300 for quite a few years. Uh, six months ago, they had about 300 launchers. So they have already have a significant capability there. But what's more important is that uh, since NATO was not able to agree on a no-fly zone from the air, uh, this gives them a better chance to establish a, a no-fly capability from the ground. This may give them the Ukrainians' capability to truly cover the entire area, particularly in the east, so that Russian aircraft aren't a significant uh, contribution to this upcoming fight. And I would think that that would be a lot of diplomacy going on there if you see the Slovakians giving one system and then the Americans providing another system to the Slovakians. That's not like something that could be hammered out in one phone call. That takes a lot of work. No, I think all of these uh, equipment contributions have been discussed since the beginning of the war. Uh, I, let's be very candid. This contribution coming from NATO has been uh, overwhelming. And in many ways, it's what's given the Ukrainians the capability to have such an impact on the battlefield. Along with the brave Ukrainian soldiers, uh, this equipment that's come from NATO in the United States has really... Uh, held back the Russian advance both in the first phase in this blitzkrieg towards Kiev, in this second phase where they've been unable to take the northern part of the country. And let's hope it does the same thing in this third phase where the Russians are going to concentrate in the east. So right now, let's show this video. Uh, it's a video of joint live fire exercises being jointly conducted by the U.S. and Poland, just a few miles from where I am. NATO is essentially sending a very clear message to Putin with this public show of force, inviting the media in to film it. Do you think Putin will heed this warning? Well, if the warning is to stay out of Europe, stay out of NATO territory, I think the Ukrainians have already done that job for him. Uh, his forces have been significantly depleted. They haven't performed well on the battlefield. They may perform better in this next phase of their operation. But if this is a force, a Russian force that is unable to conquer Ukraine in a short period of time, he, he must clearly understand that if he goes against the entire might of NATO, uh, that's probably a bridge too far for him and his military at this point. Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin, Pentagon Secretary, admitted uh, publicly the U.S. is giving Ukraine intelligence specifically on the Donbass region. It's not really a surprise, but that seems rather uh, critical. How crucial is it? Well, it's always critical. In particular, uh, we've got to recognize that the, greater, the greatest killer on the battlefield uh, thus far for the Russians has been their use of missiles and artillery. Uh, those are fairly uh, easy to see from the intelligence platforms we have in the air. 
the Ukrainians also have counter-battery radars, but uh, if they want to hold back a Russian artillery assault, which is really the centerpiece of how the Russians fight, that intelligence is going to be giving some pinpoint accuracy on where that, those artillery missile batteries are. And that could be significant in this, this upcoming fight where we should expect uh, even more artillery and missiles fired uh, than we've seen up to this point in the war. Retired Brigadier General Mark Kimmett, thank you so much for your insights this evening. We appreciate it. Good to see you. More on the war on Ukraine ahead. But first, we have a CNN exclusive text messages from a member of Donald Trump's family seeming to push ideas on how the president, then president, could overturn the results of the 2020 election almost immediately after Election Day. Before all the results were in, a top member of the Trump White House will join us to weigh in. That's next. We're live in Ukraine, and there remains much more to cover tonight on this war in which freedom and democracy are at stake. But we turn now to a CNN exclusive, Donald Trump Jr. texting strategies to subvert the will of the American voters before the election results of 2020 were even known. CNN has reviewed a text message from the then president's son to the then White House chief of staff, which states, quote, we have multiple paths. We control them all. Those multiple paths would all be tried in some form or fashion leading up to the events of January 6th. The text was sent on November 5th. That was when it still looked as though Donald Trump could win legitimately. In a statement, Trump Jr.'s lawyer says, quote, given the date, this message likely originated from someone else and was forwarded, unquote. Among the strategies posited, exerting pressure on Republican-controlled state legislators, a la President Trump's infamous call to the Georgia Secretary of State, Trump Jr. texts, quote, Republicans control Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, etc. We get Trump electors. The text also calls for objecting to the vote certification, quote, we either have a vote we control and we win, or it gets kicked to Congress 6 January 2021. As you may recall, 147 congressional Republicans objected to the certification and counting the votes from Arizona and or Pennsylvania even after the Capitol had been so brutally attacked. As the text message reads, quote, we have operational control, total leverage, unquote. There are even more plans laid out in the text, which were attempted. Let's discuss some of them with my next guest, who was the White House communications director when that text was sent. Alyssa Farah Griffin, thanks so much for joining us. So, so when you were at the White House, did you know of this type of plans in the works? Uh, well, Jake, first off, thanks for having me. And I really, really appreciate your reporting from Ukraine. It's it's invaluable. Um, I certainly wasn't aware, but I can tell you this. It, those final days, even before the election was called, but once the Arizona call was made and it looked like Donald Trump was not going to win the election, was a very scary time in the Trump White House. There was a level of desperation among those closest to the former president 
to hang on to power in any way possible. You'd hear rumors of different ideas. I've shared before, um, I was supposed to do a television interview the day after the election. The results had not been called and was told to stand down because, quote, there was a plan in place. Um, things were underway and the folks in Roslyn were kind of working out strategies of what to do. And I think this text is um, extraordinarily revealing. It shows that they were going to use every lever of the federal government as well as legislatures that were friendly to them to try to cling to power. So Trump Jr.'s text uh, makes specific references to filing lawsuits and advocating recounts. Now, that's, those are legal, legal venues. Um, and they filed, uh, and they lost more than 60 lawsuits, and there were numerous recounts, and none of them found any evidence of widespread voter fraud. Nothing changed in terms of who won those states. But how could there be a need for lawsuits and recounts at that point, November 5th, when, when the votes were still being counted? There wasn't even evidence of any fraud or evidence that Donald Trump had definitively lost any of these states. Well, that's that's kind of the fascinating thing about the big lie itself. Um, the, the Trump campaign and those senior advisors in the Trump White House had access to internal polling that that projected him losing. Um, you know, polling, it's it's not it, it, it's a science, but it's not always completely accurate. But the results of the election um, at that time, November 5th, were not far off from what we had been projecting, um, with the exception of Georgia. But this just goes to show that before it was even the Democrat, Democratic process was underway or was even complete, they were thinking of what they could do to try to hold on to power. And, and here's what's important about this, two things. This reveals just how deep the January 6th committee is going. They are getting access to information from those closest to the former president, including his son, including his former chief of staff. That's important work that they're doing. But more importantly, this isn't behind us. 2022 is around the corner. 2024 is around the corner. Donald Trump is likely running for president, and he is already working to stack secretaries of state offices, state houses, as well as install loyalists in the House of Representatives and the Senate for precisely something like this again, if he runs and he loses, to be able to have those levers in place to have operational control and stay in power. In March of this year, a federal judge called this all a, quote, coup in search of a legal theory. Uh, given that this text was sent before the so-called Eastman memo, which detailed a way that Vice President Pence was supposed to overturn the election, although obviously there was no constitutional way to do this. What other way is there to describe this other than a coup? I think it's exactly that. I mean, this is literally talking. This is sharing an idea of how to overthrow the democratic process, essentially to overthrow the rightful government of the Joe Biden presidency. It cannot be dismissed as, you know, the, the, his uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s lawyers are now saying, well, it may have been a forwarded idea of someone else's, but he shared it, which is sort of a tacit endorsement that he thinks this is something that should be shared far and wide, as the reporting indicates. I mean, this amounts to an effort to overthrow the government because you did not like the outcome of a democratic election. It's terrifying. It's, it is absolutely wrong. And I'm, I expect that there's going to be more information like this that comes out of the committee. Alyssa Farah Griffin, always appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time tonight. We return to the invasion of Ukraine coming up. I'm going to take you to a shelter for some of the roughly 7 million Ukrainians who are still here in their country but cannot go home. They had to flee 
Internally displaced persons, they're called. The painful choices they're making to escape Putin's fury and the horror stories they are hearing from loved ones and friends left behind. That's next. Back now from Lviv, President Zelensky says at least five children were killed today in Russia's attack on the train station in Kramatorsk. Those five children are among at least 45 others murdered today by the Russians as they sought refuge at the train station, which has served as an evacuation hub. These Ukrainians were just a small number of the more than 7 million people that the International Organization for Migration says have been forced to flee their homes but remain here in Ukraine. We visited a university-turned-shelter that is currently housing more than 700 people from all over Ukraine, each one with a unique story and view of this tragedy. Beneath the punching bags in this university gym in western Ukraine, those civilians able to flee their homes in the east and south and dodge the Russian military's relentless barrage are catching their breath. No one wants to be here, but it beats the alternative. And the stories they tell us reveal why they fled. We live very close to Irpin, and it was very scary. The explosions were very loud. We spent two days in the basement. The kid was very scared, and we decided to go. Anya, who once worked as a nanny, and her 13-year-old daughter, Margarita, fled Kyiv on February 28th with nothing but their documents and their dogs. We had to decide, either bag or dog, and we decided to take the dogs. The dogs, too, are a mother and daughter. The mattress is on this gym floor, their home, since March 1st. The fate of so many close to Anya, friends and Margarita's classmates, unknown. I have a lot of friends, including some of them, which cannot be reached at this moment. You try to track them down on Facebook, but you see they don't come online, and it's scary. Anya has been able to connect with her husband, still back east, who now works for the local defense forces. Is he fighting? Yes, in territorial defense. And how, how is he doing? It's better not to say. They come from Luhansk, they come from Donetsk, they come from Kharkiv. They come from Mariupol, they come from Kyiv, they come from Bucha, to here, to this university, to this beat-up old gymnasium just for a safe place away from Putin's bombs and bullets. Putin is an a-hole. Yulia Laznitsa, who has called this mattress her home for one month as of today, tries to brighten her small part of the gymnasium floor. These are not even my things. It is hard to bear it to have to wear someone else's clothes. That's why I like to have flowers, to somehow make it comfortable and beautiful. Yulia was once an administrator for a chain of sushi restaurants, a chain that shut down after Kyiv came under attack. She fled in part because she needed to come somewhere where she could still buy vital medications for her aging mother, which she sends back through the still-functioning post office. Yulia lived once just about six miles from Bucha, the site of so many atrocities. It is hard to speak without crying because a lot of friends and colleagues live in Irpin and Bucha. It is all impossible to imagine because it's so close and I might have known these people. She recently spoke with one of her friends, Alexei. The Russians couldn't open the cellar. 
so threw a grenade at the door and the girls were raped by the soldiers that entered the basement. I'm afraid to ask her more detail about it. I will know more when I meet her on the day of the victory. Her nephew's girlfriend is 18 and may have suffered a similar terror. No one wants to talk about it. Are you going to try to leave Ukraine? Yes. This 18-year-old did not want us to show his face or share his name. His parents live in a part of the Donbass region since taken over by Russians. He does not have the proper paperwork to return there, and communications from the area have been shut down. He is here with his phone and a few belongings, all by himself. My parents are not allowed to leave the Russians. His father is a local fire chief, he says. He was forced to sign a contract with the Russians. He was given a choice, either to lose all his property or to sign a contract to work with them. He was in Kharkiv when the shooting started. He spent 10 days sheltering in a subway. Then he fled here more than a month ago. He wants to leave Ukraine, but he turned 18 seven months ago, and he is not allowed to leave. All fighting age men have to stay. Mm. Yes. It must be so tough to be on your own. You're, You're just a kid. Yes, it's true. But I would like not to hear all the sirens and to try and live in peace. Just 18, on his own, with nothing. Unable to talk to his family, whom he may never see again. It is difficult to imagine, but in Ukraine, during Putin's war, this is what is considered relatively lucky. We'll be right back. Thanks for watching CNN Tonight Live from Lviv. Please join me Sunday for State of the Union live from Ukraine, beginning at 9 a.m. Eastern. I'll be joined by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Also, I'll have a joint interview with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, plus Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Plus, I'll be here next week for the lead, weekdays starting at 4 p.m. Eastern, and right back here on CNN tonight, Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.